This is Bob Boyd. And Jerry Boyd. Hosts of Issues in Education. For believers, the death of this body means you'll get a new spirit body. It doesn't matter if your body has been burned, dissolved in the ocean, eaten by worms. Jesus is going to speak, and in a great miracle, all those bodies are going to come back together, go up to meet him in the sky, and he's going to put the spirits back in the bodies. They will become immortal, and those bodies will be perfected. So the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. I can hardly wait for that day. I have so many friends who have those kind of afflictions and they will be healed. This is Bob Boyd. And Jerry Boyd. This is Issues in Education. What would happen to America if Christ followers were raptured up right now? What if there were pilots flying an airplane or surgeons doing surgery or crane operators building a high-rise? It would be chaos for this nation and the world. Are we living on borrowed time? Is the rapture imminent? Are you ready to give up your life and leave this earth to be with Jesus Christ now? That's a good question. Many people are holding on for dear life. Yeah, they say, oh yeah, sometime, but not now. Our guest is renowned prophecy expert, Dr. David Reagan, founder and director of Lamb and Lion Ministries. Dr. Reagan hosts a national TV program called Christ in Prophecy. Dr. Reagan has authored 15 books, and we are talking with him today about his book, Living on Borrowed Time, The Imminent Return of Jesus Christ. You've been 40 years in ministry, 20 years as a university professor teaching law and politics. You sure have been around a long time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think it's interesting your comment that the average Christian no more believes in the imminent return of Jesus Christ than in Santa Claus. Well, that's true. I have pastors tell me all the time that they don't ever teach and preach on Bible prophecy because they consider it irrelevant. They say it's pie in the sky and has no relevance to the here and now. I say to them, if you can ever convince your congregation of two things regarding Bible prophecy, you will totally change the congregation. They say, well, what's that? I said, if you could convince them, number one, Jesus really is returning. Most believe it in their head, but they don't believe it in their heart. Number two, that is an event that could occur any moment. If you can convince them of those two things, they'll commit their lives to holiness and they'll commit themselves to evangelism. What more could you ask for? Is Jesus at the very gates of heaven waiting for his Father's command to return? Well, I certainly think so. And the fellows that I interview in that book, some 22 different Bible prophecy scholars certainly agreed. And I think the major point that they made is that instead of just looking at one sign, what most consider the cornerstone sign of end-time Bible prophecy, that is the reestablishment of Israel, let's look at all of them and consider that the greatest sign really is convergence, that all of the signs are converging for the first time ever. End-time Bible prophecy primarily focuses upon the Middle East and Israel. It does mention other things like the Antichrist arising out of Europe and some armies coming out of Asia, but it focuses on the Middle East and Israel. It prophesies very clearly that in the end times, God is going to regather the children of Israel from the four corners of the earth in unbelief. That is the most prolific prophecy, end time prophecy, in the Old Testament. It's said over and over and over again. 400 years ago, the Puritans picked up on it and began to emphasize it, and people laughed at them and scoffed at them and said, that's nonsense, the Jews will never be brought back to the land. But even when they finally came back and their state was reestablished in 1948, 
the scoffers continue to scoff and said, well, they won't last long. I mean, after all, you're only talking about 600,000 Jews, and they're surrounded by over 200 million Arabs at that time, and they said they'll take care of them very quickly. Well, they're still there after war, after war, after war, because the Lord says in the book of Amos, when I bring them back, they're not going to be scared again. The regathering of the Jewish people is one of the most important prophecies, and I emphasize it because it leads to the others, the reestablishment of the state, the reoccupation of the city of Jerusalem, the revival of the Hebrew language, the revitalization of the land. All of these are prophecies that are made about the Jewish people in the end times, but the key to it all was the regathering. Another reason I emphasize that one is because two times in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says that in the end, when history is finished and the Jews look back on their history, they will no longer swear by the God who delivered them from Egyptian captivity, but they will swear instead by the God who regathered them from the four corners of the earth. The point he's making is that when history's over and done, the Jewish people will consider what's going on right now, the regathering from the four corners of the earth, to be a greater miracle than their deliverance from Egyptian captivity. And the average Christian has absolutely no concept of how important that is or that's even a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Wait, that's for sure. When you mentioned the Puritans, and I'm thinking other people throughout history, probably have said the reestablishment of Israel back in their land. I mean, you're talking about 2,000 years ago. I was talking to a fellow, and he said to me, wouldn't it have been exciting to live in Bible times? And I said, sir, you are living in Bible times. <laughs> oh, boy, I tell you, in one day, Israel became a nation in yes. one day, and there's no other nation that's done that. And also, you know what fascinates me? You mentioned that the turning point was in 1991 after the collapse of the Soviet Union when 2,000 to 3,000 Russian Jews yes. came to Israel every day for a that's year. Right. That's right. Yep. It's been an amazing thing to watch all of this happen after years of people scoffing and laughing and saying it would never happen. Of course, the reason for that is because the vast majority of all Christians, both Protestant and Catholic, are members of churches that teach replacement theology. They teach that God washed his hands of the Jewish people in the first century because they killed Jesus. They're guilty of deicide and God has no purpose left for them whatsoever, and the church has replaced Israel. And so they look at the reestablishment of Israel as, quote, an accident of history. Well, this is so significant because when you think about people laughing and scoffing at Israel becoming a nation again, has that ever happened in human history before? And yet it happened in a day. And think of that, the day before it happened, people were still laughing and scoffing. I know. I know. Another part of that prophecy is not only what happened in a day, but the prophecy is about the labor pains will come after. It says, have you ever known of a woman who had labor pains after the birth? Well, that's going to be the case with this nation born in a day. And that's exactly what happened. They declared the independence of Israel on May the 14th, 1948. And the very next morning, five Arab nations attacked. And they've been attacking ever since, war after war after war. They're still in the labor pains to this day. God established Israel, a small nation. It's such a teeny nation, and yet everybody focuses on Israel. That's right. It really is the focus of everything, because that's where Satan is focusing. Anytime we get near the Temple Mount, he just gets enraged. And it's amazing how he has orchestrated the press of the world so that everything is the fault of Israel. The United Nations spends most of its time blaming everything they can possibly think of on Israel. They blamed even the depression of Palestinian women recently, many of whom are being beaten daily by their husbands in accordance with Islamic law. They blamed their depression on Israel. 
<laughs> just no matter what happens over there, when the Muslims started building an illegal mosque on the Temple Mount, underneath the Temple Mount, and started scraping out all this dirt, and one of the walls of the Temple Mount bulged and almost collapsed, it was blamed on Israel by the United Nations. Wow. And Israel had nothing to do with it. But everything is blamed on Israel. Yeah, the reason for that is because Satan knows that these signs of the times really demonstrate a very important fact, and that is that Israel becoming a nation again was a prerequisite for Jesus coming back. Yes, Satan knows Bible prophecy. It says in the middle of the book of Revelation that when he is finally thrown down to earth and has no more entrance into heaven, that he knows his time is very short. So he decides to try to annihilate the Jewish people during the second half of the tribulation. Satan hates the Jewish people with a passion. He hates them because they're the chosen people of God. He hates them because through them God gave the word. He hates them because through them God gave the Messiah. He hates them because Jesus said, I will not return to earth until the Jewish people are willing to say, Baruch HaBab HaShem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he hates them because God has promised to save a great remnant of them. He wants to annihilate them. That's what the Holocaust was all about, and that's what he's going to try to do during the second half of the tribulation. Okay, and we also need to mention the fig tree and how Jesus said that that's a symbol of Israel. Well, yes, I believe very strongly that the fig tree in Matthew 24, the fig tree parable there, is a symbol of Israel throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, for example, many times the fig tree is used as a symbol of Israel, whereas the vine on the ground is used as a symbol of satanic influence. The thing that's interesting about it is that the day before Jesus was walking over the Mount of Olives with his disciples and he saw a fig tree that was barren, and so he put a curse on it. And as a result of the curse, the fig tree just wilted. What that was was a symbolic prophecy. Because the Jewish people had rejected him as Messiah, God was going to pour out his wrath and discipline them. The next day he comes, there's that fig tree, and he points to it and he says, watch that tree. When that tree blossoms again, you will know that I'm about to come. And so that fig tree blossomed again in 1948, and I think that clearly indicates that we are in the season of the Lord's return. We can't know the date, but we can sure know the season of the Lord's return, and we are in that season right now. You know, the signs of the times, as I point out in my book, the signs of the times point to the tribulation and the second coming. But when you see all those signs accumulating, you know the rapture is right around the corner. I was preaching on that one time, and Tim LaHaye came up to me afterwards. He said, let me give you an illustration. He said, my wife and I went to a mall recently. My wife turned to me suddenly and said, Tim, look around the mall. Tell me, what do you see different from the last time we were here? And he said, I looked around. The only thing different is they're putting up Christmas decorations. She said, what's that a sign of? He said, it's a sign that Christmas is coming. She said, that's right. And it's also an indication that Thanksgiving is right around the corner. When we see all these signs accumulating that are pointing to the fact that we're on the threshold of the tribulation, we know that also means the rapture is right around the corner. Well, that's good. You're listening to Issues in Education. I'm Bob Boyd. And I'm Jerry Boyd. We're talking with Dr. David Reagan on his excellent book, Living on Borrowed Time, The Imminent Return of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 24, 32, learn the parable of the fig tree. When you see these things, Jesus is near, right at the door. He said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, how long is the generation? 
Scripture always has to be interpreted by context. I can show you a context in Scripture where a generation is 40 years, where it's 100 years, where it's 70 years, and where it's no years at all, where it simply refers to a generation like I would refer to the Nixon generation. All I think it means is that people living at that time are the people who are going to see all this come to pass. I think, personally, somebody who was alive in 1948 may have been a baby, is going to see the return of the Lord. I think we're that close to the coming of the Lord. And Graham Lotz was born May 1948. She said she firmly believes it will be in her generation, and she's now 71. So can a generation be 70 or 80 years? Oh, yeah. There's a place in the Bible to show you that a generation is 100 years. I don't think a particular time period is just that the people, that generation, the people living during that time, or the people who are going to see all this come to pass. Okay, so we're finding out that Jesus' return is imminent, but what about the rapture? Doesn't the rapture happen before Jesus returns? It certainly is before the second coming. I certainly believe that with all my heart. In fact, my latest book is entitled The Rapture, Fact or Fiction, and it's all about that. The reason there is so much disagreement over the timing of the rapture is because the Bible does not clearly state when the rapture is going to take place. Therefore, any position that anyone takes has to be based upon the inference of Scripture. And I believe the strongest overwhelming inference of Scripture is that the rapture is most likely to occur before the tribulation begins. The one position that people take on it that I would strongly disagree with and one that's becoming increasingly popular is the idea that the rapture and second coming are all one event and that Jesus is going to appear in the heavens, we're going to go up and meet him, and we're going to immediately return to earth with him. People who don't like that call that the yo-yo rapture. And the reason that I'm strongly opposed to that is because that concept destroys imminence. The Bible teaches that the coming of Jesus is imminent. It can occur any moment. If you believe that the rapture is part of the second coming, then the Lord's return is not imminent. It couldn't occur today because... You have to have seven years of tribulation. You've got to have the rebuilding of the temple. You've got to have the Antichrist. There are so many prophecies that have to be fulfilled before the second coming. So if you believe the rapture is a part of the second coming, then you're not living looking for Jesus Christ, as we're told to do. You're living looking for the Antichrist. And we're never told to live looking for the Antichrist. Well, that's right, because we know when the second coming is, because it's seven years after the tribulation starts. Exactly. And it says Jesus comes as a thief in the night. So he comes when we're not really knowing when he's coming. So it would have to be the rapture. Could that happen like a few years before the tribulation? Yes. The rapture is not what kicks off the tribulation, as you well know. What kicks off the tribulation is when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. So I think the rapture could occur months, even two or three years before the tribulation begins. What would happen is that the church would be taken out of the world, the world would be thrown into absolute chaos, and then Satan would empower his Antichrist candidate, and that person would step forward with great wisdom and say, I have the answer to all your questions and all your problems, and he would begin making his rise in Europe and be taking over the European Union and establishing his headquarters. And at that point, he would go to Israel and make a covenant with them, and that would be the beginning of the tribulation. And as you pointed out, it's a very good point. The Bible says point blank that Jesus will return exactly seven years after that covenant is signed, and that seven years consists of years of 360 days. 
you're around during the tribulation, you can count down to the day Jesus Christ is going to return. Boy, you don't want to be around then. So let me quote from your book. The rapture is not the event that marks the beginning of the Great Tribulation, since there has to be some time between the rapture and the Great Tribulation. That's true. Okay, I think so. Let me just repeat what I hear you saying. First, Jesus will appear in the heavens to call believers to himself in the rapture. Then later he'll return to earth to pour out the wrath of God on those who have rejected his love and grace. Right. And then finally, Jesus will begin his thousand-year reign on earth from Jerusalem. Yes, that's the sequence of events. So you have the rapture, then the tribulation, the second coming, and the millennium. And then at the end of the millennium, we will be taken off this earth. I think we'll be put in that new Jerusalem. And from that vantage point, I think we will see the greatest fireworks display in all of history. As this earth is engulfed in fire, God burns away the pollution of Satan's last revolt. Out of that fiery inferno is going to come a new, refreshed, renewed, and perfected earth. And he's then going to lower us down to that new earth in that new Jerusalem, in our glorified bodies, and we're going to live in his presence on the new earth forever. Amen. And I might say to you, that was the biggest shock I ever got when I started studying Bible prophecy. I grew up in an amillennial church where we were taught Jesus was never going to come back to this earth again. And we were taught that we were going to be disembodied spirits for eternity floating around on clouds playing harps. But when I read the scriptures and it said point blank, we're going to have new glorified bodies and we're going to live on a new earth in the presence of Almighty God forever, that heaven's going to come to earth. I was in a state of shock. I just couldn't believe that my church hadn't taught that over the years. Well, that's exciting. It really is. Now, tell me this, though. When Jesus comes in the rapture and he gathers the saints, either alive or those that have gone before us, then don't we get resurrected bodies then to come back to reign for a thousand years? Yes. You're right on target. What happens is that when those who are believers in Christ die, their bodies may go into the sea or into the ground or may be cremated or whatever, but their spirits go to be with the Lord. And we are given an intermediate spirit body. It's a body that's between the current mortal body we have and the ultimate immortal body. And we are in spirit bodies in heaven. In fact, in Revelation, John's taken up and he sees all these people in white robes before the throne of God. And he asks who they are. And he says, well, these are the tribulation martyrs. So we know that we have some sort of intermediate spirit body. But when Jesus comes back in the rapture, he brings with him the spirits of all those who have died in him. He resurrects their bodies, puts their spirits back together with their bodies, and instantaneously glorifies their bodies, making them immortal. So it doesn't matter if your body has been burned, if your body has dissolved in the ocean, if your body has been eaten by worms or whatever. Jesus is going to speak. And after all, remember, he's the one who spoke and the whole world came into existence. He's going to speak, and in a great miracle, all those bodies are going to come back together. And they're going to go up to meet him in the sky, and he's going to put the spirits back in the bodies. They will become immortal, and those bodies will be perfected. So the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. I can hardly wait for that day. I have so many friends who have those kinds of afflictions, and they will be healed. My wife, for example, is suffering from dementia, and I look forward to the day when her mind will be restored. Amen. And I have a grandson who never was able to speak and died at the age of 25 living in a padded cell because he beat his head against the wall all the time. And I look forward to the day when I will be able to sit down and get to know him personally. 
I can hardly wait for that. That's the kind of hope oh. that we have as Christians. Amen. I agree with oh, that. Me too. Now, the second coming of Jesus Christ cannot occur until certain prophecies occur. First of all, they have to rebuild this temple. Then yes. the two miracle-working witnesses have to appear in Jerusalem to call the world to repentance. And yes. then the Antichrist goes into Jerusalem, kills the two witnesses, enters a rebuilt temple, declares himself to be God, and the Jews flee Jerusalem to go to the Jordanian wilderness where they're supernaturally sheltered. Yes. Then the Antichrist vents his fury by killing two-thirds of the Jews of the world. This is an amazing sequence of events. Could you elaborate? It, yes, it is. And in fact, when they flee into Jordan, and in Daniel chapter 11, it says that when the Antichrist comes back into the Middle East with an army, it says that he will be not allowed to go into the area of Ammon and Jordan, that that will be protected supernaturally by God. It also says that when the second coming occurs, that Jesus will go first to that area in Jordan where the Jewish people are, and he's going to bring them with him when he lands on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem at his second coming. One day when I was 12 years old, I'm just flipping through the Bible, and I come to Zechariah chapter 14, and I read the first nine verses, and I nearly passed out. Because even though I was 12 years old, I could hear, it says, In the end time, Jerusalem be surrounded by enemies. Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives. When his foot touches the mountain, the mountain will split in half. He'll speak a supernatural word and destroy the Antichrist and his forces. And on that day, verse 9, he will become king over all the earth. Mm. I was flabbergasted. I took that to my pastor, 12 years old, scared to death. And I went in his office and I said, Sir, you know, you say there's not a verse in the Bible that even implies Jesus will ever put his feet on this earth again. He said, That's right. I said, Look at this, Zechariah 14, 1 through 9. He sat there and he read it and he read it and he read it. I thought he was never going to say anything. Finally, he looked up at me and he stuck his finger in my face and he said, Son, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know what this means, but I'll guarantee you one thing. It does not mean what it says. Oh, boy. Because we spiritualized everything the Bible had to say. And that's when I teach Bible prophecy, I tell people the golden rule of interpretation is if the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense or you'll end up with nonsense. Absolutely. <laughs> you wrote that in the first half of the Great Tribulation, these two witnesses will call the world to repentance and they will will be killed by the Antichrist, and their bodies align the street for three and a half days. That's interesting. Again, symbolic. And the whole world will look upon them. People couldn't understand how that could happen before the satellite TV and the internet and communications we have throughout the world. They can all see the bodies lying in the street. Well, that's a very good point you're making there, because at the end of Daniel's book, he says to the Lord, I don't understand these end-time prophecies that you've given me. What do they mean? And God says, cool it. It's not for you to understand. I want you to write them down. They will not be understood until the time comes for them to be fulfilled. We are understanding prophecies today that we have never understood before, either because of historical developments or because of technological developments. And you just pointed to one where it says the whole world will look upon two bodies in Jerusalem for three and a half days. Now, how could that be before the mid-1960s? That's when we put up our first communication satellites, and the whole world can watch them. Another example would be in 1909 when C.I. Schofield put out the Schofield Study Bible. In that original edition, when he got to Ezekiel 38 and 39, he said, I don't understand this, I can't explain it, but it says in the end times, Russia will invade Israel. Now, why did he have difficulty? Because, number one, Israel did not exist, 
And number two, Russia was a Christian Orthodox nation. So he couldn't understand why. He says, I don't know. I, don't, I can't explain it, but it says it, and therefore I believe it. Today, we don't even stop and think about it because we know the Russians hate Israel, and the Russians are sooner or later going to invade Israel. We've been talking with Dr. David Reagan on his book, Living on Borrowed Time, The Imminent Return of Jesus Christ. We'll continue with him next time. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says, The Lord will come down from heaven, and with a loud command, the dead in Christ will rise up, and we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to be next to the Lord in the air. What a great hope we have. When Christ appears, we'll be transformed into a body like his, no longer this physical body, but a spiritual body without pain, without death, able to pass through walls, speed rapidly through space from earth to heaven. It's the heavenly body. As 1 John says, when he appears, we instantly shall be made like him. God will take our spirits, ourselves, our personalities out of these dying bodies and put us into an immortal body as easily as we would change our clothes. This is a question everyone needs to ask themselves. How then should we live? First of all, loosen your grip on this life. Let it go. Don't hold on for dear life. As Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for him will save it. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May you just get a glimpse of eternity as never before. If you would like a CD copy of today's program, please ask for number 1644, The Imminent Return of Jesus, Part 1. That's number 1644, The Imminent Return of Jesus, Part 1. The CD also includes next week's program, Part 2. You can order a CD copy of this program from our website. Our website is issuesineducation.org. That's issuesineducation.org. And give us a call at 928-776-0000. That's 928-776-0000. From 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 